Let's talk a little bit about the new Tesla that was announced. The P85D. Is this something that you are considering now? I am seriously considering a P85D. How much, how much was it? Uh, I think it's like around 120. 120? Pretty much if you end up tricking it out. Yeah. And then the, the zero to 60 is in the ballpark of a three ish seconds and it's all wheel drive now. Yeah. Yeah. And also they raised the top speed to 155 miles an hour. Mm hmm. If you remember, um, all of the old Teslas had a speed limit of around 120. Relating to the gearing with the electric motor, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I really like about Tesla is they seem to iteratively solve all of the problems that they have. Yeah, they have a, a they have a real a real sort of software startup mentality. Like build something complete and viable, and then iterate like crazy. I think what they do is that um, one of the things that made me be a little turned off for the old Teslas is the fact that like their zero to 60 was around the same as my M3. Mm -hmm. In addition, the inside of the Tesla, it, I mean, it's nice, but it's not like super nice. So, um, they seem to have updated the interior. So when the P 85 D's come around Southern California in around the end of November, I want to go check one out and see if they've made the inside nicer. We can hope. Yeah. Uh, then when Tesla first came out, there was the whole apprehension of, uh, what do I do if I want to go cross country? And they decided to come out with the supercharger stations. And those are, ba those are basically everywhere now. Yeah. Um, then there's the whole issue of, uh, well, what if I don't want to wait half an hour or an hour? So they made it where you can swap the battery. Right. So, I mean, Tesla's seem to be really good at addressing what people complain about. So eventually it will come to the point where there are no more complaints. Well, I'm sure there always will be complaints. Yes, there will always be complaints. However, the complaints will go from, you know, really show-stopping complaints to more minor nitpicks. Yeah, and they're also very good about getting out ahead of, like, negative news that's been published about them as well. Whenever, whenever someone posts a negative article, almost, they're almost too aggressive about it. It kind of bums me to think that uh, Top Gear will probably not get a test copy or a test drive of the uh, new Model S. Yeah. Of course, uh, given their previous treatment, you can't really blame them. Yeah, I can't blame them. And especially with how controlling Tesla is of their image. Mm-hmm. And how they want to be presented to people. I think they originally did it because they know that because they were car guys and they knew that a lot of uh, car guys are really into Top Gear. Then they sort of learned their lesson. Right, right. I was really hoping for them to do a new Roadster, but I guess that didn't happen. Yeah, like I, I really don't see that for a while. Well, I mean, part of what I find interesting about the Roadster is the fact that um, the updated battery will make it go 400 miles. Mm-hmm. But then uh, my understanding is you can't use the supercharger stations with the um, the Roadster. Why not? Just because of the plug? or I think so. I'm not 100% sure. Well, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah, but then the uh, the Roadster is something that uh, they weren't looking to really sell en masse anyway. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. What are your thoughts on the automation? So did you see the, did you see any videos of it in action? Uh, yes, I did. So I, I only saw-, saw the one that was like two minutes long. Did you see anything else? Uh, no, that's all I saw was uh, pretty much them at the release of it going around the course doing Mm -hmm. lane changes and whatnot. Yeah, that that looked really good and smooth and fast and seems reasonably impressive um, Mm -hmm. so far as autonomous driving goes. Of course, my vision of what autonomous driving is is like 10 years old at this point. Right. But also something to consider as well as this autonomous driving is only happening on the freeway. Right. Did they say, did they say only freeway or did they just say, or did they just say that it's not going to happen everywhere? Uh, I think they, um, they specifically limited to highway slash freeway driving. Okay. So they probably want something that they have good maps for and have that is usually fairly wide open and don't usually have any sort of abnormal things like surface streets usually do. Yeah. I mean, with surface streets, you have things like uh, intersections that you have to worry about. Uh, you have to worry about uh, more of a chance of pedestrians crossing. It's and, uh, yeah. And you also have to be more concerned with things blocking signs. And one of the things that I thought was pretty cool about their presentation was that it would read, it would use OCR on the street, on the speed limit signs and adjust the speed appropriately. Yeah, I found that interesting, but I found later that uh, BMW does this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I know that it's not new. It's just, mm-hmm. it's not something that we had gotten to. Yeah. So, I mean, overall, it looks, the car looks very impressive. And I mean, I'm sure that you can get cars that are more expensive that can do a faster zero to 60 or a faster top speed. Mm-hmm. But this looks like a very, very well-rounded car. Did you have, did you have any idea what the sensors that they were using for the autonomous driving were? Cause uh, I, I would, I have guesses, but I don't, I, I don't, I didn't read enough about it to have the specs. I didn't see. I just saw that it was something like between 12 to 15 sensors. Okay. I didn't see what they were. So my conjecture is that there's several cameras, um, and then probably a LIDAR, uh, so a laser range finding. I don't know if, if they would do a 2D, which is just a mirror going back and forth, or 3D, which is basically a, another swiveling mirror that goes that does uh, individual lines. So you um, mean like stereoscopic in this case? Well... Yeah, I mean that would the, with a laser rangefinder you get basically get the distance to something. So whatever you're looking at becomes 3D when you're when you're pointing to it. Right. Okay. If you're using laser to rangefind, you automatically get the point in 3D space. Mm-hmm. And if you're using a mirror to go back and forth, then you have a, a, a 1D line of or of 3D points. And then if you want to get a full 3D viewing of what you're looking at, you then need to go up and down as well as left to right with your mirror mm-hmm. when deflecting a beam. And this can take a little bit of time. So it's sort of like a, a TV scanning, an old CRT scanning. Got it. Well, then again, I mean, you. I guess it's a question of how long it takes for them to do a scan. In the case of a TV, it's doing a whole scan within a 60th of a second. Or, well, it's doing half. 
I mean, you, you know what I mean within a CRT that, uh, right. And then there's the issue of how, e- even though the lasers are confined, they still, the beam still widens as you get further away. So the accuracy is, is in, and there's also more, uh, a larger sampling area when you get further away. Mm-hmm. Um, with the, with the really high powered, la- uh, laser rangefinders, the ones that go like 12 kilometer, well, I guess that's not really high per, uh, powered, but reasonably powered ones, the ones that go like 12 kilometers or so, uh, it has, it usually, they usually have both a minimum distance and a maximum distance reported back to you because there is, uh, because of the spot size being that big. So, um, with the Tesla, one of the things that I'm concerned about still is, uh, failover. Like what happens if a specific sensor fails? Like, um, for instance, um, I have a Toyota Sequoia. And, uh, whenever I put on the automatic radar cruise control, if it's pointing in the direction of the sun, like for instance, if it's uh, 6 PM and we're going West, uh, a lot of the time the radar cruise control won't work. So I'm wondering with Tesla that what kind of scenarios would the automatic, would the uh, automation not work? I, I mean, anything that requires like, really complicated reading uh, of a situation or if there's things that blend in easily to the background uh, that a normal that even a normal human would have problems with or Mm -hmm. uh, text that's necessary to read that's in a weird place um, you could have trouble with yeah i just uh one of the things i wonder about is say i have an automated vehicle like this and i'm driving down the highway and something like a deer a deer or a bear or some kind Those of Those are the kinds of things that are actually less complicated to deal with because hmm. they just, do, they just appear as positive objects. Um, so there would be like positive objects, which are something you can run into and then negative objects, which are like a cliff. Okay. Or, a, or a giant pothole or whatever. <laughs> so that's good to know that, uh, there's more of a concern of going off a cliff with uh, automated driving than well. No, no, well, I mean, that's that's also another thing that should be relatively easy to deal with. Um, the things that are trickier are more along the lines of like rules that it needs to follow that it would be disobeying for some reason. Like, for example, well, I'm sure that one of the reasons that it uh, doesn't that it only works on the highways. Uh, and they don't want you on surface streets is because there's a lot more times where you have to obey a traffic officer on a surface street. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that there's no way that they're going to read their hand signals. Right. Which at that point, um, I mean, at that point you are still looking at the, dr- you are still looking around. You're not, it's not like you're asleep in the drivers. And then there's, seat. there's other things that where that are, that are sort of fuzzy, like where, uh, there's certain situations in a lot of cities where if you don't break the law, you will never get anywhere and the people behind you will be very angry. Mm. You're thinking New York City? Uh, there's LA too. Oh, okay. anywhere, anywhere you have to make a left turn on a busy street and there's no dedicated light to it. Right. Which I guess, uh, this is why they're only talking about highway right now. Yeah. So I'm wondering when they say that it only refers to highway, is it only referring to highway during cruising speed or um, will the car be able to handle itself during rush hour? Uh, I I would assume that it can handle itself during rush hour uh, as long as it can still 
Yeah, I mean, it, it has sensors all around it. It can see the objects. It knows how to space itself with the objects. Mm-hmm. Um, the lane changes, I'm sort of wondering how well it will be able to adapt to different situations because you can get kind of ambiguous there when, like, the, a lot of times lanes aren't painted properly uh, or other things like that. Or in the case of construction, like where one, uh, where the lanes become sort of weird. And a lot of times you have to drive down the, drive in the middle of two lanes where you, I've noticed, um, I've noticed highways where, um, there are the painted, there's, uh, the painted dashes for the lane, but then you can still see the old lines. Mm hmm. It's sort of, I sort of wonder how it would do with that as well. Yeah. And I, I kind of wonder what sort of, what sort of checking it has to do against itself with the various sensors, because a lot of times they're, they will contradict each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that when we were doing it, uh, we, we had sort of a very basic approach that served us reasonably well. Uh, we had a whole bunch of different sensors and each sensor would basically vote on which direction to go with a certain weight associated with it. So, like, we want to go in this direction with the weight of whatever. And then we had a, another thing that was called an arbitrator. And if anyone is curious, so that the paper that we had submitted to DARPA is online, so you can actually see what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, link in the show notes. Uh, the arbitrator would have a lot of things like contextual information for f- doing the sensor fusion and take these uh, votes and... and and try and ascertain whether or not wh- which is the most appropriate one to follow. Like, for example, in certain situations, most of the time you want to you you want to s- stay in the boundary of where the road is. And <clears throat> the way that we had it was we had data for most most of the roads, and so usually we wanted to stay within the boundary of that. But more than that, we had the boundary uh, that we weren't allowed out of uh, with the GPS waypoints that we were given. So if that was narrow, we still, we definitely needed to stay in that because DARPA wouldn't let us go outside of that. So, uh, just to confirm that, uh, during the DARPA project, you were only doing pathfinding. You weren't, uh, you didn't have to account for, say, other vehicles at the same time. Actually, it's sort of the reverse. When I first started on the project, we had absolutely no idea what we would have to do. So we just assumed that we would be given two or three point, uh, like 10 or something waypoints or something like that. And we'd have to find our own way, but it turned out that they gave us thousands of waypoints. And so our (laughs) path was basically given to us. Uh, and the problems were more along the lines of making sure we didn't hit stuff. But the other thing is there are thing, there are things like tunnels where you would no longer have GPS. So you had to rely on your inertial navigation in order to make sure that you're in the correct location. So, uh, with thousands of waypoints, in some case, in some sense, does that become a traveling salesman problem? No, 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 no. Not like a, you needed to visit those waypoints in a particular order. Oh, okay. Okay. So it, it basically made the path planning much simpler because path planning, instead of becoming a Google Maps kind of problem, it then just basically became a find the most efficient way to go for this very small period of time and don't hit anything. Mm. Um, it was, so it made a lot of my initial work sort of useless because I had done a, I had done a sort of a dynamic, a, uh, a dynamic A star, uh, but I guess it's just called D star and modified that, uh, to do the path planning 
and taken a bunch of things into account regarding the the type of train and uh, whether it went off road or had a path or had any sort of things like that. And it turned out that we didn't need pretty much any of that because they gave us so many waypoints. Mm. Um, well, when this you is did especially that... true. This is especially true during the first and second grand challenge. The third challenge, you had to like obey traffic rules and stuff, and there are sometimes multiple ways that you could go for things. But for the first and second one, it was basically that. Uh, how much time did you have between receiving the rule set and the waypoints and whatnot and actually adapting your software? I believe that we are given the waypoints the day before. But did you know for, say, the second or third or fourth one that you had to obey traffic rules? For, yeah, we knew that we had to obey traffic rules in the third one. The second one we didn't have to, and the first one we didn't have to. We just had to not hit things. Okay, so you knew ahead of time that eventually your um, your driving would have to abide by these specific rules. That it wasn't something that you had to uh, you had to scramble for a couple weeks or a couple days or whatnot to change your algorithm. Right for the for that for that for the first and the second one, we we basically just had to make sure not to hit things, and there was a big safe there was a big thing on safety where you had to absolutely obey the emergency stop <laughs> that was the most important thing that was tested the and actually the what's kind of also kind of interesting is the the second grand challenge was actually easier course wise than the first one the first one went over some pretty uh tricky terrain uh fairly close in about 7 miles in and that's as, the first one that's actually as far as anyone made it 7 miles we we had sort of a technicality on the first on the first grand challenge and then made it about four miles uh on our unofficial run, which would have put us in fourth, I think. And then for the second grand challenge, um I don't remember exactly how we did, but we made it a good amount of time and it would have put us in uh and our problem in the, the, the second grand challenge was actually mechanical. Like a, a linkage broke on our suspension, and so we were sort of pulling to one side for uh, five miles before it finally uh, stopped working. Mm. Um, which was disappointing because I think the second one we could have actually finished if the mechanical issue didn't happen. So back to the the sensors a little bit. The the sensors that we used were a a cam uh, like a regular video camera, and then we also used a lidar a 2d lidar the one that just scanned straight across so we didn't we didn't do the whole 3d thing because usually if you aim it right you don't need to mm-hmm. um and then we used the gps which you of course you need to do if you're going to follow gps coordinates right and we used a uh we used a navtech gps which also has uh a more accurate positioning based off of local ground stations that that emit a signal i believe uh, so we would have base essentially centimeter accuracy, and uh, we noticed along pretty early on that a magnetic compass was not going to cut it. It gave any time you went near metal, you got screwed up, um, which is a lot of the problem that we had in the first one was our compass was uh, our was messed up. In the second one, we started off by using two Navtech GPSs and using the difference in the GPSs to get our heading. And then eventually switched it to uh, using a fairly expensive 
uh, inertial navigation unit for the heading, which you, which for that one, it used the, uh, acceleration from the spinning of the earth in order to get the compass heading. Huh. The INS was probably our most expensive hardware. It cost like more than a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> Wow. But it was extremely accurate and probably worthwhile because we could turn our GPS completely off and still know where we were for a, at least seven miles. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So it was a pretty crazy, nice, uh, INS. Mm-hmm. Then there is also a thermal camera, which was actually not that useful, even though I did write some software for it. Uh, then there was, a, uh, a, a camera, an, an optical camera called a bumblebee. And what this is, is it's a stereoscopical, stereoscopical, uh, camera that has two little eyes and it, you can go and then build 3D terrain based off of it. And that was how we did a lot of our, for the first gun challenge, that's how a lot, we did a lot of our nearby, uh, obstacle detection and avoidance. Uh, for the later on, uh, and the later gun challenges, we found that if we want to be able to look far enough out to go at a reasonable speed, the lidars are the much better, the much better choice. I decided to look it up and, uh, it says on the press release that every single Model S now rolling out of the factory includes a forward radar, 12 long range ultrasonic sensors, position oh, to the sense- radar. I forgot about that. We tried okay. to use a radar, uh, but our results were bad enough that we just gave it up. Hmm. Uh, we also tried sonar, uh, which were also too noisy. Well, this is interesting because, I mean, it says that they, they're using a forward radar, 12 ultrasonic sensors positioned to sense 16 feet around the car mm-hmm. in every direction at all speeds. Right. A forward-looking camera and a high-precision, digitally-controlled electric-assisted braking system. Okay, but that doesn't sound like a sensor. Yeah, I mean, the braking system doesn't look like a sensor. Yeah. Yeah. So for... That that kind of gets us... So for what we did for our vehicle is we modified a Jeep Grand Cherokee because we knew that it was going to be off-road, and the, the person that sponsored us happened to have that as his daily driver. So he basically just donated it to the company. And so at the time of the event, it was already a 10-year-old vehicle. And amazingly enough, it is still operable today. The, the 10-year reunion of the Grand, DARPA Grand Challenge was recently uh, occurred recently and it was actually brought out to that reunion and gave people autonomous rides. <laughs> that's pretty awesome when we modified it we have uh we had a person on our team that he modifies vehicles for handicapped people for a living so they often require con- special controls in order to move their vehicle and it's sort of a small step from doing these small like joystick kinds of controls to basically having a computer being able to do it mm-hmm and so he added that stuff to it and then we had a rack of computers that were shock mounted in the back and it is incredibly incredibly amazing that we didn't have massive hard drives failure because at that point in time we couldn't we couldn't really use ssds or anything so they were all spinning discs that were shock mounted how big was the um how big were the hard drives 
You mean capacity wise? Yeah, capacity wise. I actually don't remember. I want to say about 500 gigs. Oh, so totally doable in SSD nowadays. Yeah, it t- totally, totally doable in SSD now. You could probably have taken our entire rack of machines and replaced it with one computer now easily and still had processing power to spare. Hmm. I mean, think- keep it, these are 10-year-old machines. <laughs> yeah, true. It, more than that now. Do you think you could repurpose something like an iPad or a tablet and do it on there? Or, Well, I mean, the major problems that you would run into with an iPad or whatever are just like finding things that will connect to it because a lot of the devices that you that you want to connect to it are still insist on using serial Mm. and that was a problem when i was integrating devices for ga as well uh we really wanted to move off of serial but so many things use it that we wanted to control that we just couldn't and we had purchased a serial to usb adapter and server or I'm sorry, not serial to USB, a serial to, I think it was a serial to Ethernet. Hmm. Um, and we wanted to use that, but uh, I never ran into the development. Uh, I never got the development time for it, so I never I never put that in. Do you know if that's changed in the past 10 years? If more, there are more devices that no longer run off of serial and perhaps USB instead? I, I think that mo- most nowadays do do usb but you only need one critical device that doesn't work with usb to run into a lot of pain and that the other thing is even a lot of them do have usb but um a lot of this kind of stuff is a lot of this kind of work is considerably easy if you easier if you stick to one platform and for both the autonomous vehicle and the surveillance we had chosen linux because Mm -hmm. of other concerns um, instead of Windows, and a lot of times these sensors only have drivers for Windows when you're using USB, but when you're using serial, they just have a plain specification. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense now that I think about it. Then all of the stuff was then put into, uh, put in and controlled through a National Instruments, I believe, controller. Uh, I think it's National Instruments. They have a, they have sort of a little programming interface that's very drag and drop and connecting components together with lines and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's not national instruments, I'm going to feel very bad. And there is many, many wires coming out of that, uh, going to various components that we were trying to control. It, it got kind of hot in there with all the computers. And so we actually took part of the roof off and installed an air conditioner. <laughs> part of the problem also was that we decided that we were doing testing where we were going to have the event and since the event was in the desert starting from um barstow and going to vegas mm. we we wanted to not die in the vehicle while we were testing and so we needed a beefier air conditioner oh okay uh, i was thinking for some reason i was thinking of like a wall unit yeah it was like- basically a wall unit that really? we stuck on top of the roof. Like the kind of thing... Well, I mean, the kind of thing that you would put in a motorhome, basically. Mm. That kind of unit. And because of all of this power draw, we needed to put in an auxiliary battery. And I guess that's easier for Tesla if they needed that much power. But they shouldn't need nearly as much power as we needed because they don't have all the computers to drive. Right. But even if they did, they could do it with all those gazillions of batteries that they have. And then we needed a beefier alternator 
because we couldn't charge the battery fast enough otherwise. See, it sucks that um, that one constraint of not dying in the desert just makes yeah, things so much harder. Especially since you don't need anybody in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we, we spent a number of weeks out there testing in the desert. Um, and... It was, it was, it's very interesting trying to write code while you're being driven around autonomously over rough desert terrain and hoping that it, uh, sees the cliff and doesn't run you over it. <laughs> so, it's a very, um, in your it's case, a very interesting coding environment. So, um, if you're in the car, do you actually have like a hardware uh, switch to switch it off? Like for instance, if you're going towards a cliff, and oh uh, yeah, I mean we could take we it, it since it basically turned the we- steering wheel and pressed the gas and brake for us, we could take control of it at any time pretty easily. Oh okay. <laughs> so um, and the motors that were controlling the steering steering wheel are not stronger than we were. At least they did not did not apply as much force as uh, we would. Yeah, so we could take it over pretty easily. One of the kind of in- amusing things is it it did it did go into sort of a ditch at one point and get stuck, um, and w- there was no way to get it out really. But the but but the, we did have Ethernet cable, so Ethernet cable was used as a winch to pull the vehicle out of a ditch. <laughs> So, uh, how many cables were you looking at? Like, uh, did you take, like, a whole bunch of them? It wasn't so much that it was, like, putting its full weight on the Ethernet cable. Yeah. It's just, it needed something to yeah. to get it to go back. <laughs> <laughs> the siren that never ends, it goes on and on, my friends.